On this episode of the Nonprofit Ready Podcast, I speak with Marsha Charney, Executive Director of Students Run LA, also known as SRLA. We're not serving the athletes. We're really just serving average kids in middle school and high school who might never have done anything uh, exceptional. Welcome to the Nonprofit Ready Podcast. Conversations with accomplished professionals from across the nonprofit sector about what they do, why they do it, and how they make change happen. I'm your host, Justin Waddell, from nonprofitready.org and the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. And today, I'm pleased to be joined by Marsha Charney, Executive Director of Students Run LA, a Los Angeles-based nonprofit that challenges at-risk secondary students to experience the benefits of goal-setting, character development, adult mentoring, and improved health by providing them with a truly life-changing experience, the training and completion of the LA Marathon. We are live at Student Run LA's offices in Tarzana, California, so expect to hear some of the sounds of a standard office as we go through today's interview. Marsha, thank you so much for hosting us today. Thank you for having us. Now, you've been at the helm of Students Run LA for over two decades now, and I'm really excited to actually dive into what that experience has been like for you. But I thought we might start first before Students Run LA with what your nonprofit career has looked like and what ultimately brought you to the organization. So before we dive in to SRLA, what were you doing before then? Well, I did work um, before that, um, actually pretty much as a volunteer with uh, the very early on magnet schools. Mm -hmm. And so that was really the beginning. I, I then worked with an, uh, a few non, well, I worked with the nonprofit Los Angeles Educational Partnership when it first began. And um, I ran a program called Small Grants for Teachers in which um, teachers could apply for a small amount of money to do special original projects in their classroom. And so that gave me even a further introduction into public schools and how the private sector could, um, could help benefit public school teachers. And, um, and that was very interesting to me. And um, then ultimately I went to work for a board member uh, actually, she was president of the Board of Education at the time, and uh, I went to work as her uh, deputy. And it was during that period that we heard about these three young continuation high school teachers who had um, trained with a small group of students, about 20, and uh, taken them to the Los Angeles Marathon. And of course, that was there, there was kind of a mischief side to that because they had to alter their ages. At that time, if you were under 18, you couldn't run the marathon. And so, um, but the head of the Los Angeles, the owner of the Los Angeles Marathon at that time had heard about them, and he was intrigued. So he, he wanted to meet them, and it made some press. And uh, so we found out about it at the Board of Education, and I was a runner, not a marathon runner, but a runner. And um, and so the board member, Roberta Weintraub, said, why don't we meet these young men and see see what this is about? So we did. We invited them to come in to the board offices, and we were bo both quite intrigued and excited at the idea. And uh, she was really the one that said, we can do this district-wide. We can make this happen, which in a huge school district doesn't really sound like something you're going to be able to make happen. But mm -hmm. 
In reality, we did. Hmm. Um, we, we, of course, had to find sponsors, which we did. We went uh, outside to look for people who might be interested. And um, we held some meetings, and we somehow put it together. We, we brought in the president of the marathon, and he made a commitment to giving free entry. That first year, it was actually um, a year of a strike in Los Angeles. Hmm. Um, so we in, And we invited high school teachers to come, and obviously they weren't going to be compensated, but they came to this meeting. And, um, and that's really kind of how it was born. It was, the, it was with the support of the marathon saying, We're gonna, we will do this, and it will be free. And we held a meeting, and we had about 35 classroom teachers come to the meeting, all high school. And um, that, was, that was the beginning. We had a group of about 250 uh, run the first marathon. Yes. Now, putting together an alliance of that many different interests isn't exactly an easy thing to do. And once you have them all in the same room, I'm sure you want to continue that conversation. What did you do to make sure that you were able to build momentum for future years? Well, the truth was that, you know, when whenever you bring together a meeting like that, um, it does help if you have the president of the Board of Education saying, we, we're going to make this happen. Because you have a lot of people in the room saying, well, we don't think we can do this. <laughs> so that was really, that's kind of the challenge. We are going to do it. And... Um, and I think that the fact that, you know, it, it, it did have that uh, corporate support from the outside. Um, there was a proposal put before the Board of Education and passed, uh, so there was board approval overall. Um, we had some foundation support. Um, uh, a foundation was willing to take the risk and, and put up, I think, $35,000 for which we could pay for bus transportation. There were certain pieces that we knew had to happen or it wouldn't work. Uh, one was the passion of the classroom teacher had to be there. They had to be the mentors. They had to want to do this. And compensation was not even a question because there was no, there would be no funds for compensation. So this would be on their own time. And we knew there had to be bus transportation because that would be the only thing that would level the playing field, that all students could participate. Because actually from the very beginning, the framework was pretty much set where there would be a series of shorter runs leading up to longer runs leading up to half marathons and then ultimately the marathon. And so these students had to be bused from their schools and entered into these community races. And so all these pieces had to be, um, had to work in order for the level uh, playing field mm -hmm. uh, to come into being. Okay. Now you mentioned the importance of passion of the teachers who are going to be involved in this. Now, you know, a lot of times people make metaphorical mention to a marathon being an absolute slog. It's difficult to get through. You can lose motivation. In this case, they were actually running a literal marathon. How did you maintain the passion of those teachers over the course of those many months and prevent burnout and keep them aligned to a singular vision? You know, I don't think that you can do that from the outside. 
the most that we could do um, as the administration, so to speak, was just to provide the most support that we could possibly provide to the teachers so that their focus could be on the students, orchestrating their practices, um, making sure that, that the students had what they needed. And so we just did the best we could do to support them. And I, I really have said um, <clears throat> over the years, and I haven't changed my mind, I think the success of this program in Los Angeles, which now has grown, as you know, from that first group of 250 to over uh, to 3,500, and actually at one time it was really getting up to 5,000 where we were training uh, kids up until the half marathon, and we had to cut that back. But it, it could be limitless. I mean, the demand for the program has always been great. And um, the only thing that I think makes it work is the fact that these are teachers, um, guiding teachers. The initial coordinators, those first three uh, young men who did this and found out how life-changing it was for their students, um, have managed to pass on that that sense, that passion, that, you know, it, it's all about how does it make you feel. And um, I think the fact that it was teachers teaching these other teachers and passing it on and that they feel the ownership of the program. It's not a top-down program. If it ever becomes that, I think it will be finished. It has to it has to be that that sense that they own it. There's over 500 volunteer out of the classroom teachers now, and uh, they're all over the greater Los Angeles area, as you know, and they own it. I mean, it, without them, there is absolutely nothing, and I don't believe you can really hire people to do this. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would work. Um, I mean, you could try. And maybe you'd have a few successful programs, but I honestly believe they have to come to it and they have to feel the success through their own students, which they do. And now that we're in our 27th season, um, we have, I don't know, close to 30 or 40 of our leaders are now uh, alumni. They were kids in the program, either in middle school or high school. They've gone on to college and they've become teachers and they're now back in the L.A. area and running a program of their own. And it's obviously resonated. I mean, you mentioned it grew from 250 people to at one point almost 5,000. It's pretty explosive growth. How have you managed that growth? What considerations do you make when you say, yes, we should scale up or no, we should scale back? Well, I don't think we made, we made conscious decisions to scale back. Mm-hmm. Um, to scale up, I don't think they were conscious decisions. They just kept happening. And in the early years, we were excited by the growth. Oh, my God, look at all these schools that want to become, you know. Uh, we're now in 175 schools. You know, I think the, the whole concept of having to cap the program mm -hmm. was the most difficult challenge that we faced because, you know, we, our groups could grow uh, independently, you know, we could have a group of 150 and we could have a group of 20 and, and we were fine with that. But when the program really got up there, 
uh, into four and five thousand, uh, clearly we couldn't sustain it. We couldn't, mm -hmm. and then on top of it, the the marathon uh, did come under new ownership, and they were not going to allow us um, mm -hmm. kind of to be a runaway train. Right. So so the capping was really on both sides. It was. Uh, partially on the side of the marathon, and it was also um, we were getting too big for community races. You know, we were bussing in 3,000, 3,500 kids to a community race. They couldn't park our buses. <laughs> so, you know, you have to be somewhat practical about it, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. and I feel like there's an inclination in the nonprofit sector, especially, to want to serve and want to serve more and as many people as you can possibly serve. So I imagine that's not an easy decision to make, making that No, cap. The, the capping was a very, very hard, um, I, I think it took us two or three years mm -hmm. of really hashing it over and over again. Yeah. To Did figure you out use the, specific measurements or data to inform that, or what ultimately, aside from the organization? Well, we kind of knew, uh, we kind of, what we did was, you know, try to look at, first we I mean, we started out with geographic limits. Mm -hmm. We started to bring our borders in because there were times we had we had a group that was all the way out in Palmdale, I think. Mm -hmm. So we moved our borders a little. Uh, we made that more reasonable. We also uh, stopped taking in uh, community organizations and and private schools. Originally, um, we had we had some of those both. And we and so we had to put a limit on that, and that those were easier decisions to make. But um, then it got down to capping indiv individual programs, and so we did it kind of by percentages. So, you know, we couldn't take a a program of 150 down immediately to 25. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just wouldn't be fair. And so we kind of pared the the larger programs down over time. Mm -hmm. And any new schools that came in were allotted a smaller number of spaces to begin with and then allowed to grow a little bit, little bit year by year if they want to. Nice. I want to transition to a discussion of impact, which I feel is always on everyone's minds in the nonprofit sector these days. Uh, what is the impact you seek to make beyond just Enrollment or completion of the race? Are you tracking high school completions? How has that vision changed well, since I think you started? From the beginning, um, from the beginning, the idea was to, um, to see students graduate and have plans for post-secondary education. Um, that that was really from the very from day one. It mm -hmm. was stay in school, graduate, and and go on to post-secondary education or plans. And um, that's pretty much stayed the same from that very small group all the way to these students today. So I would say that if we didn't, uh, we say that at least 95% will finish, the, will complete the race and will go on to college. And that has held true year in and year out. That's it's awesome. really closer to 97 98, it's it's always more than 95. So I see that as the greatest impact. I mean, there's so many other, um, you know, uh, other things that have come to light since those early days when the, the concept was that they would set a goal and achieve it. Um, 
now we realize, you know, it impacts their health tremendously. Mm -hmm. And and they understand it and they they can comment on it. You know, they they watch what they eat. You know, they change they change their eating habits. They change their eating habits of their families. You know, I've had students talk about how, you know, they they've really kind of forced their mothers to cook different things. Mm-hmm. And um, and then in a lot of situations, families become involved. You know, parents start running. Mm-hmm. Uh, siblings, cousins. You know, it's a it just spreads. Right. And it, it sounds like you've learned a lot from this spread since it first began, right? We have. So there's health now. There's clear conversations about college opportunities, family opportunities to come together. How have you adjusted the programming as it's continued to answer these priorities? I would say we haven't. Hmm. I mean, what we've done is offer training once a year to our leaders. We have a training conference. And so, you know, we've probably um, we've probably altered the kinds of things in the earlier years. We focused almost entirely on training, physical training, <clears throat> running, pacing, and so forth. Um, but we've always recognized we, you know, that we should bring a medical person. Uh, we've had adolescent doctors come and speak uh, to answer questions. We've had. Uh, a variety of different nutritionists. So we know that everything goes to the leaders. Mm -hmm. Everything goes to these kids through their leaders. So what we've tried to do is expand and give the leaders more and more information and new information every year to work with so Mm -hmm. that they have have the most that, that we can give to them to pass on because that's the way it gets translated. Mm -hmm. And what's your approach to the training of these leaders? It sounds like, and I think I've learned this from personal experience as well, a leader oftentimes or a mentor oftentimes has no idea how powerful their influence can be. So how do you help them to really harness that and channel it in the most effective way? Well, I think our our coordinators, the, the three from the very beginning, and then we've added two more to them over the years, they have... Uh, they played a big role in um, in the conference and in the training of the uh, of the leaders and the new leaders in particular. I mean, we've really found that this group of leaders themselves becomes you know they become the experts, so mm-hmm. that we've had them participate in the conference as well. But your point, they try to make at the very beginning of the conference just how important this role is and um, uh, I think that is something that's difficult for for individuals to accept you know it's, it's not that easy for them to accept that they are such an influence that they are so important to these mm-hmm. kids I mean I think they they know it at some level but it's not something you that you see them easily acknowledging but um, they have a lot of information themselves to share, and so we try to make it possible uh, in settings for them to share it among themselves as well, because they're great trainers for each other. Mm-hmm. You know, they their time with us varies. You know, all the way from brand new, which are always the fewest, 
uh, to those that have been with us for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that component of knowledge management you mentioned earlier. Yeah. How important it is for them to train each other. I like that. I want to transition to some of the lessons that you've learned over the course of your leadership. And we can start with just some of those lessons. Uh, what lessons do you wish you had known when you were first starting as the executive director of Students Run LA? I don't know. I, I think that this particular um, program is unique. And I don't know um, don't know what would have really prepared any of us for it. Um, I, I think we kind of jumped in and and then discovered what you know what could happen. Um, I don't I, I probably could have had more training in just about every area of management, I would guess. I think that um, that probably would have been helpful mm-hmm. to me. Um, you know, there's, of course, if you're a nonprofit, you have a board of directors, you know, and who do you bring onto the board? And I think if I had, um, I guess that's what I wish I'd known more about at the beginning. I wish I'd known more about um, the function of a board of directors of a nonprofit and what, uh, how to really get that kind of training to, to form a board. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't. We just kind of, you know, brought people together that that were supporting the organization and asked them to be board members. So at some point along the way, when you do that, you have to transition those people and and new people that you bring on to to really be your fundraising arm and to learn about give and get policies and Mm -hmm. I think it would have been easier if I'd known more about that in the beginning and could have uh, brought on you know maybe people that wouldn't have had to be (laughs) you know that maybe we could have done it better from the at the very beginning but then again you know those people that started with us and some of them are still there they they serve their own purpose, mm-hmm. you know. So with every with every person that comes to work with a nonprofit organization, everybody brings something. And when you think of those who have come to your organization, be they coordinators or actual employees who've made those big impacts, uh, what attributes did they have? You think brought a lot of value to the organization and let you know that these were hires you had to make. I think everybody who's come to the organization has has exhibited some passion for what we do. The only uh, people who've come where it didn't work out, it was always, if I think of it in retrospect, it was always more of a job for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that passion has to be there. That passion has to be there because, um, you know, it's just, uh, that's just the way it is. Because in order to keep thinking about how you can make it better, how you can improve it, or, you know, who else you can bring into it. You have to feel the passion about it, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. And And you've clearly had that passion over the course of your career, and everyone who's come on and made that impact has had it with Students Run LA. Now, what are your goals for Students Run LA, both short-term and long-term? I think the program just works for a new batch of students every year. I think there's very little in middle and high school 
that's free and that gives so much to an individual student. So I'm, I'm no longer disappointed that we can only do it to for 28 or 32 or however many students we serve each year. Um, at first I kind of felt disappointed in not being able to increase that number. And then I've thought about it, you know, how many programs can really serve 3,000 students well for almost an entire school year? Um, there aren't, there, there just aren't. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and there's so many facets to this. And, and it so impacts these lives forever. So I'm satisfied that we probably are not going to be able to grow the program. Um, it becomes more and more expensive. Mm -hmm. Buses become more and more expensive. Um, I've thought off and on, but we've never done it. But maybe at some point it would be nice to have a leadership um, piece to this program, you know, where maybe we could provide um, real some real leadership program um, to some of our students that show those qualities. But... Mm -hmm. We haven't done that. You know, there's kind of a theory about stick to your knitting. Mm -hmm. You know, we know how to do this. This works really well. You know, we, uh, we have great success. And maybe, that, and maybe it's okay not to change, not to try to, you know, keep changing it or change it up in any great way. But I, I hope we continue to serve the students who really need to be served the most. Um, I worry a little bit about that because as we tighten uh, all of our policies, um, there's going to be fewer and fewer second chances. And mm -hmm. I think we've always been a program of second chances for kids. So, you know, I'm hoping that that doesn't diminish in any way because um, we're, not, we're not serving the athletes. We're really just serving average kids in middle school and high school who might never have done anything uh, exceptional. Mm -hmm. That is really what makes the program worthwhile, is that lives are being changed that may have just kind of slogged on and not, not been all that meaningful, and now they will be. Mm -hmm. Well, I have to tell you, I really appreciate your perspective on this. It's refreshing to hear of a program that's really focused on doing what it does and doing what it does very well and isn't as concerned with trying to find the new and shiny whistles to add. You've obviously made a great impact for the students that you're working with and will continue to do so each I year. I hope so. And we are going to this year try to um, actually begin an emphasis on looking for our alumni mm -hmm. and bringing them back into the fold because now um, we know we have some. We have leaders that are, that are alumni and we have about we have a um, email list now of, of alumni but you know we started before there was email uh, right. <laughs> before there was any social media right. before facebook Just you know collecting some, deeper numbers yeah so so now we um now we're looking for those alumni and we want to bring them back in and we want them to um, become a part of the organization and give back to the organization, and so mm -hmm. we'll that that will be an emphasis this coming year, and and hopefully we might even do an alumni run. That um, I love it. Yeah.
that um, we'll bring together. Nice. Now, before I let you go, I always like to ask this of everyone we interview, uh, what advice would you give to someone who's considering a career in the nonprofit sector? I think that if you're considering a career in the nonprofit sector, you need to find, it's a big sector. I think you need to find something that speaks to you. Um, you have to find something that is really uh, of great interest to you personally, not just look for a job in the nonprofit sector. I think one of the things that I've found working in nonprofits for, for my whole career is that um, people really need to be appreciated. And, um, and I think that, you know, if anything, we hope we're doing a good job with our leaders showing how important they are and trying to support them and, um, and make them feel appreciated for what they're giving back. Because I think that nonprofit, uh, uh, there's a lot of that that goes on in the nonprofit world, and you can kind of forget um, how important that is. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, we have all these out-of-the-classroom teachers who give so much of their time for free that it's really important for them to know that they're appreciated and that we understand, you know, they're the beating heart of this organization. So I think in all, probably in all nonprofits, it's really important part to to make sure people are treated well and, and appreciation is shown. Mm -hmm. Yeah, things to remember for one's entire nonprofit career <laughs> or for-profit career. Right. Very important sentiments. Well, Marcia, we definitely appreciate you. Thank you so much for oh, your time today. Thank you. And for those who do want to learn more about Students Run LA and may even want to get involved, where should they go? SRLA.org. Okay. SRLA.org. Well, thank you again. Thank you. I can't you tell very you how much, much we appreciate it. Thank you, and watch for us on February 14th. I will be there. My girlfriend <laughs> may not be as happy with that, but I will be at the marathon on Valentine's Day. Oh, good. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Nonprofit Ready Podcast. Be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. And while you're there, be sure to leave a rating and review. If you haven't done so already, be sure to sign up for nonprofitready.org, which includes all of our previous podcast interviews, some amazing webinars, and more than 300 online learning resources covering the most crucial job functions in the nonprofit sector, all 100% free. The Nonprofit Ready Podcast is a production of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation. I want to thank our executive producer, Alec Green, and our editorial director and sound producer, Trung Ngo, and most importantly, you, for listening and helping us to build a nonprofit ready community. Learn more about the capacity building services of the Cornerstone On Demand Foundation at csodfoundation.org. Thanks again, and have a great day.